0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Kurt Raflob about his new translation of the works of Julius Caesar for the Landmark series, entitled The Landmark Julius Caesar. Kurt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well,
1: I'm originally Swiss. I came to the United States in the Late 70s. I've been teaching at Brown for 40 years and I'm retired now. I have been a Greek and Roman historian, working on all kinds of topics, but Caesar has been very much in the forefront for, at the beginning, my dissertation was on Caesar's political strategy in the Civil War. And I've recently been working more again on Caesar and then doing this edition and
0: translation of Caesar's works in the Landmark series. What led you to undertake this translation? Was it uh, something that you had long uh, aspired to do, or was it something that you increasingly felt that there was a need for?
1: Um, It's not that I felt there was a particular need for this, but um, I was very impressed by the Landmark series that Robert Strassler created with his editions and translations of Thucydides, Herodotus, Xenophon, and Arian's um, Wars of Alexander the Great. Um, I thought that this series was superb because it really brought the works of ancient historians close to a very broad readership of interested laypersons who did not know perhaps very much about the time, but were interested, and who would be, who would profit from um, the particular features that Straster introduced. His um, landmark editions are characterized by the the, um, abundance of uh, notes and maps, diagrams um, of illustrations, of explanatory materials such as appendices that briefly characterize um, issues that the lead, the reader might want to know about. And I was very much impressed by that. And when I got into working again on Caesar's Civil War, I thought that perhaps he might be interested in a civil war for his landmark series, and I wrote to him about this. And he wrote back and said, we are already doing a Gallic war. I took that to really know. Um, he was not interested in the Civil War, but then two weeks later he told me I talked with the editor, and they really wanted a complete Caesar. And would I be willing to um, take that over? And uh, I agreed, not knowing at the time the tremendous amount of work that was involved <laughs> in producing this kind of, <laughs> of, of volume. <laughs> I don't... Um, hesitate to to admit that it. I spent about eight years of my life producing this um, producing this book, and um, but um, that's how I got into it. And I think it's it's just useful. It's a very useful piece of work, and it will do a lot of good in terms of bringing some of the great authors, and including in this case Caesar, to the attention of a. broad readership, including teachers. Um, Perhaps um, it's important to note that in high school Latin, the AP courses now feature Caesar and Virgil. So the teachers have to deal with Caesar in a way that they didn't until a few years ago. And this book, I think, is going to be a tremendous help for them as well. And uh, I was a teacher at the beginning and I always thought of myself as a teacher. And uh, so I think this this stimulated me in, in addition to, to produce this.
0: And I think that's an important point to stress because it's clear when I was reading your book that there is an enormous amount of learning and effort that goes into it. But it is... Um, uh, It is amount of erudition and and labor that really is designed to make the text accessible. I mean, it's not just that it's a new translation. It's that all of that uh, supporting work you described, the notes, which are very helpfully uh, embedded at the bottom of of the page and not at the back, the the maps you provide, the images that are in the book, all are there to really take what might be... uh, these, uh, sometimes for modern readers, obscure or esoteric references and, yeah. and make them accessible to, to us today.
1: Yeah. And um, I think it's important to stress that um, the traditional ways that these authors are presented to modern readerships in the paperbacks is um, very unappealing. It's, uh, you know, the pages are printed full to the margins, almost. um, There are a couple of maps in the back with a thousand names where you can't find what you are actually looking for, and a few notes somewhere in the back. And um, what this new type of edition that Strassler devised is uh, doing is you have a map after every few pages that brings just the names that occurred, Recently, So the author doesn't have to uh, go far to find uh, the places. We have campaign maps that show how the campaigns of Julius Caesar developed in the course of his campaign years. Um, We have diagrams of of battles in several stages where the text of Caesar becomes better understandable because the reader can see how the, the battle developed Sometimes we have two of these, two stages. Sometimes three, um, once even four stages. So all this is designed to draw the reader in and to make it uh, better understandable to him
0: or her. You also help to make it more understandable by fitting the books into the context of Caesar's life. Your introduction is a biography of Caesar, and I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining a bit. Uh, You know, know, give us some of those details about Caesar's life and what it was that led him to write the first of these books.
1: Yeah, Caesar was uh, lived from 100 BCE to 44 um, when he was assassinated on the famous Ides of March. Um, He was uh, a member of the Roman elite, um, which was a very competitive elite that had at that time uh, conquered a large part of the mediterranean what became later the roman empire and um, he was mem- a member of an old family that had more recently seen less distinction and he was a very ambitious man he was also a very stubborn man um, and he had an uncle the famous gaius marius uh, war hero who defeated the German migrating tribes the Cimbrians, and, and Teutoni, and um but was a was a was a man from a wealthy but non noble background and uh, Caesar identified very much with this tradition of a politician he was what we would call today in a positive way a populist a man who who sought the connection with the people and who uh, um, drew inspiration from his connection with the people. Um, as part of uh, the Roman way of shaping a political career, one um, always had to do uh, military um, things. And uh, so Caesar, when he became consul, which was the highest office in Rome, um, then aimed at a, a series of governorships which were in the north of Italy, um, what is today the Provence and then the Po Valley from the Alps to the Adriatic and the sliver of the northeastern Adriatic, which was called Illyricum. And uh, because he felt that there was an opportunity for him to gain military glory as his great model, Pompey, um, had done before in the in the east, and so um, Caesar got involved in this war with the um, a Celtic tribe, the Helvetii, actually my Swiss ancestors, and <laughs> um, <coughs> and uh, uh, that led gradually to the um, conquest of Gaul over um, several years, from 58 to 50 BCE. Um, The problem for Caesar was that he was, in some ways, a visionary, but he was also um, uncompromising. And he had a hard time with the conservative, what we would call conservative ideologues in the Senate. And um, he saw solutions, and he proposed solutions and he wanted them discussed, but when the other side just refused to do that, he got easily angry, and that caused him a lot of trouble, because he then had to resort to unconventional and even violent means to pass his legislation, and um, that caused his enemies to want to bring him to court as soon as he returned from his governorship. So he was under pressure to um organise his defenses, and as soon as he started his wars in Gaul, he um, started to publish every um, winter after a campaign season a fairly detailed, very well-written report about this campaign, which was then disseminated. In Rome, in Italy, and to everybody who might be interested, um, in order to learn from Caesar his own perspective on what he was doing in, in Gaul, and that led to these uh, what we what are called commentaries. Uh, that's the title the Romans gave these um, reports um, about the Gallic War. There are seven of them. The eighth on the years 50 and 51 and 50 was written by one of Caesar's lieutenants. And these form what we call today the Gallic War. So that's how these books came about and how they were published. We, don't, uh, we may assume that perhaps at the end, before Caesar uh, planned to return to Rome, um, he had uh, sort of revised some of them to, to, to tie them better together into one work. But this is all very speculative. We don't have any, any exact information about it.
0: That for me was one of the uh, interesting things to think about, which is that this was not a book in the way that, say, Ulysses Grant's memoirs were—a you know, a a, a retired general looking back over county's campaigns. Mm -hmm. This was a political document that was designed to highlight things that were important to promoting Caesar's career.
1: Yeah, and it we we need to know that there was a constant flow of correspondence between Caesar's camps in Gaul and Rome and Italy, um, a flow of correspondence and information that reached both friends and enemies of Caesar. Uh, We have um, some references that tell us that even Caesar's enemies in Gaul received correspondence from Caesar's enemies in Rome. And so Caesar knew that information circulated in Rome and Italy Uh, That was not necessarily favorable about him. And so it was very important for him to present in these um, reports, in these books of the Gallic War, his view in a positive way that allowed the readers to identify with him and to see that he was doing a really good
0: job for the Roman state and the Roman people. What were some of the ways that he does this in the Gallic War? Because I, I was fascinated by it. It was, you know, I, I hear about the Gallic War. Uh, I, 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 I've, I've re- read about how it's, this influential book. And in reading it, it was a little bit different than what I was expecting. In what ways, what did, you know, how did he use the book to convey it beyond just simply explaining what he did? What were some of the techniques he adopted? What were some of the approaches he adopted in it to achieve those goals that you described?
1: Well, at the very beginning, he was starting a war, as I said before, against the um, Helvetii. This was a Celtic tribe living in what is today Switzerland, and they were planning to migrate to the Atlantic coast um, near Bordeaux, modern Bordeaux, and um, they wanted to migrate through the Roman province um, and Caesar denied them this request because he said this would cause so much damage um, to the province that he couldn't allow this as governor of the province. Um, and, uh, he then uh, They then changed their plan and um, chose a route that did not touch the province, so they denied Caesar the cause a war, but Caesar was adamant that he needed this war, and uh, so he started this war against the Helvetii without really having a very good cause. But So he needed to justify why he was doing it, and he does it in several ways. In um, One was that one of the sub-tribes of the Helvetii was, had been involved 50 years earlier in the migration um, uh, of the Cimbrian to Tony, which I mentioned, uh, which Marius had defeated and um but they had defeated several Roman armies, and in one of these armies, there had been a consul, and there had been an ancestor of his wife so Caesar presents it as uh his defeat of this tribe as a just- uh, he justifies it with the fact that his his personal honor, his family's honor, and the Roman state's honor was now restored. That was an argument that the Romans would. Immediately accept that was very logical to them. As a as a governor of a province, um, he was responsible to keep the province safe. Um, his claim was that this migration of Telviti would endanger the province because a very warlike and a very dangerous tribe would settle near the province, and so he took this as a justification for keeping that that tribe from migrating to where they wanted to go in order to protect the province, and he had allies among the Gauls in independent Gauls, and these were felt threatened by the Helvetii migration as well. They called for his help, and that was yet another justification. So he establishes very carefully that his move uh, into independent Gaul, starting a war, that eventually step after step, led to the conquest of this whole area, um, that this was justified by um his responsibilities as a Roman, as a Roman governor, um, and as a, um, uh, a Roman official uh, responsible to protect the interests of Roman allies. This developed gradually over the next few years into a, a more complex vision in which Caesar then saw the need to subject that entire big area, which is today France, Belgium, Southern Netherlands, and Switzerland. Um, And he describes his effort then in the last books of the Gallic War as an effort to conquer Gaul for Rome in order to create the safe, a safe area in which both Romans and Gauls can live safely and prosperously together. Um, this is the vision that is formulated gradually as the war develops, and that was very attractive to the Romans because the Romans had very negative memories of Gallic invasions that go back to um, centuries earlier. Um, the sack of, of Rome by the Gauls, Brennus, These are names that perhaps some of the leaders recognize. Um, uh, So that all fits into a tradition which Caesar then exploited in his favor to justify why he was
0: doing this in Gaul. It was interesting in how he presents this, not just in terms of these arguments he's making and his portrayal of the groups he's fighting, but he does it in the third person. And I was wondering as I was reading this, is this something that his readers would have been aware of that that he was the one writing this, or would they have thought of this as a more dispassionate account? They were getting what we might think of nowadays as perhaps a more objective discover, uh, description of what he was doing.
1: Yeah, it, I think it was a very deliberate move. Um, it was not he was not the first to do that. The great great Greek historian Thucydides had um, used the third person when he talked in his history about actions that in which he was himself involved. Um, Xenophon, um, and, uh, another Greek historian, wrote a work in, in which he described his own leadership sit, um, actions uh, to, uh, with a band of 10,000 Greek mercenaries um, who, whom he had to extricate from what is today Iraq, um, back to Greece. And when he, whenever he writes about himself and his actions, he uses the third person. So there were, there were models for that, but Caesar does it very deliberately because it really helps objectify his narrative. It depersonalizes it. It allows the reader to look at it from the outside rather than from the inside. And, um, and therefore to judge what Caesar is doing um, in a way that they couldn't if
0: he were writing in the first person. So, he concludes this campaigning in Gaul in over a period of several years. What happens next, and how does that lead him to write his next book?
1: Um, Caesar, as I said before, was in deep trouble when he left for Gaul because of his actions in doing his consulship, the Violence that was used in passing some of the legislation and so on, he had a determined group of opponents, a very eminent senators who were determined to bring him to court whenever he returned to rome and he and they were determined to prevent a second consulship of caesar the The law was in Rome that you had to have ten years pass between holding the consulship so yeah, these were the 10 years Caesar was in Gaul. And what Caesar planned to do was to return to Rome, but directly from his um, consulship, uh, from his governorship to the consulship, um, so that there was would be no time in which he was a private person and didn't have official um, immunity. Um, this required that he could apply for the consulship in absentia. And that was actually granted to him by a bill that was passed in the assembly, but then denied to him by various machinations by his enemies. And uh, his enemies were just absolutely determined that Caesar had to return to Rome in the uh, ordinary official way, um, apply for the consulship, and they hoped that in this time they would be able to, to convict him of some of the crimes that he had committed, both during his consulship and in Gaul, because he had uh, started a war in Gaul without um, authorization by the Senate. Um, So this plan of Caesar failed, and uh, negotiations failed, and his enemies were able to pull Pompey, who had long been Caesar's ally. Um Caesar's daughter was married, even married to Pompey, which was a very happy marriage, but she died in childbirth shortly before the um, end of the Gallic War. And so his enemies were able to pull Pompey to their side, um, and Caesar then uh, felt that there was no way that he could defend himself except by um threatening and then starting a civil war. And his hope was to finish the civil war so quickly that the damage would be minimal. Um, and it, he almost succeeded in a blitzkrieg, as you would call this today, um, uh, through the Italian peninsula where he just failed to prevent Pompey from escaping with his army to Greece, which then prolonged the war and made the wounds much deeper. Um, so that's the background and that's the civil war that took place in 49 and 48 between Caesar and Pompey and his army which was also the army of the Senate uh, because uh, Caesar's opponents in the Senate had uh, declared Pompey their general and the defender of the republic and had declared Caesar an enemy of the republic, an outcast. And, um, so that's how Caesar was also able to convince his soldiers to fight the civil war, because he said, unless we win this war and we uh, reintegrate ourselves into the state as citizens, we will not be able to get the rewards for the long service we did in Gaul together for Rome. Um, and so this is the civil war, which Caesar describes in three books, um, in the Civil War of 49 to 48. Um, it ends with the great battle between Caesar's and Pompey's army uh, in uh, Thessaly, in Greece, in the summer of 48, and the death or assassination of Pompey in Egypt by uh, the pharaoh's um, advisors who f- were afraid that if Pompey sought refuge with them, they would bring Caesar to them, and that would involve them in a war which they didn't want to fight. So that's the civil war. Caesar. Was writing that very much with uh, in the hope to to present himself as the man who really was able to rise above the parties and unite the Roman state and overcome the factionalism that had plagued it for so long, and he therefore he 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 wrote this work. But when he returned to Rome in 47, he had probably. Um, realized that the, the situation in Rome, the way the Senate operated were just incompatible with any rational and reasonable government that he was used to, um, because he had for ten years been his own man and um, in charge of his own decisions uh, as a general. And so he had a very hard time to reintegrate himself into the complicated, Uh, mechanics of um, dealing with the Senate. It's very much like our Senate in in, uh, in Washington. Um, If you don't know how the game is played, you are lost and you can't succeed. And um, you need a lot of time to manipulate and to bring people to your side and all that. And that's um, not what these are was used to do and it was not what he was willing to do. So he never published the Civil War, Um, even though he had prepared it very carefully as a work reintroducing him to the state, but he decided not to publish it. It was published after his death, probably, by um, some of his um, closest followers and supporters.
0: And it wasn't necessarily going to be his last book, because as you go on to describe, he goes and wages further campaigns uh, within the Roman Empire. And this leads to the final three books, which are very different. I was wondering if you could perhaps begin by providing a bit of context about the events described in those books, and then what it was that differentiated the later books, uh, Alexandrian War, African War, and Spanish War, from Gallic War and Civil War.
1: Yeah, um, the civil war was fought all over the Roman Empire. Um, it began with an Italian campaign in which Pompey was driven out of Italy and um, went to Greece and reorganized his army and his forces there. He had long, standing uh, Pompey had long-standing relationship in the east and uh, drew on these relationships to build a very strong army. In the meantime, Pompey had also been the governor of Spain, and um, he had seven legions, a large army there, and Caesar felt that he could not pursue Pompey to Greece before he had um, taken care of the army that was in Spain. So Caesar went back to Rome, tried to convince the Senate to collaborate with him. This was not successful. Then he went to Spain and, in a very short forty-day campaign, defeated um, the um, enemy army uh, there. Um, and then came back to Italy and, in the in January of 48, went over to Greece and uh, defeated Pompey, as I said, in Thessaly, in Greece, in 48, in, in August 48. Then pursued. Pompey, who was fleeing to Egypt, there Pompey was assassinated. This got Caesar involved in a war with the Egyptian pharaoh and his forces, um, which he eventually won. Um, and then before returning to Italy, um, Caesar felt that he had to take care of some urgent problems in the eastern part of the empire, especially, um, there was a, um, a despot or a king of uh, Armenia and Pontus named Pharnaces. He was a, the son of the famous Mithridates, the sixth of Pontus, whom Pompey had defeated before. And Caesar went to where this uh, king was, defeated him in a battle. This is the battle in which Caesar supposedly said. Very really leaky because it was a very short um not dramatic battle, but a very short campaign and um Caesar then returned to Rome in the end at the end of forty seven uh, or I think in summer of forty seven then in the meantime, however, the opposing forces, the successors of Pompey, had reorganized themselves. In the province of Africa, which is today Tunisia, and, um, Caesar felt the need to confront him there. So before the year was over in 47, he crossed over to Africa, led a campaign there, and defeated the enemy forces there, um, returned to Rome. And again, before the end was, uh, the year was over in 46, he, went to Spain because there the last remnants of the resistance um, against him had reorganized and so he fought the Spanish War which um, ended um, with Caesar's victory and the death of uh, Pompey's son, who was the commander of these forces. And that was the end of the Civil War. Now, it is possible that Caesar had planned to continue to write a book on the Alexandrian war. That means the war in Egypt against the forces of the pharaoh. The first part of the work that we have as an Alexandrian war shows stylistic characteristics that are very close to Caesar's text. And so we are probably justified in assuming that the author who put this book together was using Caesar's notes or drafts for the first part of this. But Caesar certainly didn't finish this and, uh, uh, the person, we don't know who it was, the person who edited and put together and edited this book on the Alexandrian War, then used reports of various subcommanders of Caesars, uh, about their actions in the Adriatic or another one in Spain and so on to, uh, to put this book together, which is a sort of a grab bag of various, um, campaigns. The, War in Africa in 476 was uh, described or written by a an officer of Caesar's. Um, we don't again again don't know who it was, but we know that he was a high-ranking officer because he's very well informed and he understands what's going on. On the whole, the whole picture is clear to him. He actually defends Caesar's decision against some of his critics um in very interesting way he says caesar is um criticized for having done this but no caesar knew exactly what he was doing because a b c d and um so he was a high ranking officer and he wrote this work um and that was then in in included in this whole which we call the corpus of caesar's works um the spanish war is yet another story the author probably is a sergeant, a centurion, a low, a low-ranking officer. He writes in a language that is very close to spoken Latin, what we call vulgar Latin, and um, is very difficult to understand. Um, it took me the longest time to translate actually that word because it is so difficult to to know what he actually means in in the way that he expresses himself. And um, but. That's, um, and he writes without knowledge of the whole picture. He sees just the area in which he is active. And he writes a day by day narrative in which he says, for example, on this day, two, um, two spies were brought in and they were executed. And then the next day, um, a few horsemen joined us from that and that place. So he writes sort of as a, um, you know, a, a sergeant would would experience the war from a lowly perspective, but also with a. He's is, is not uneducated, so he knows um, uh, how to write quite well, but in a language that is difficult for us to understand. So the last three books are very different. They are certainly not by Caesar, but they are extremely valuable because they show us. For example, how Caesar's officers saw him and um, they give us insights into um, the experience of the soldier uh, of Caesar's civil wars, um, which
0: we don't get from Caesar's own writings. So what do these books reveal about Caesar? Not just as a uh, as, as a General, or as a politician, but also as an author, what what, what does reading them today tell us about him, and, and in a way, tell us about ourselves? Well, there are several questions in that, right? <laughs> um,
1: yes, there are. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: first of all, um, Caesar was not only a great general, but he was and a great leader. I, I always emphasize these two aspects because. Generalship is the art to win battles. Um, leadership is the art to get an army to perform on the highest level. And uh, that's necessary in, in order to win victories. And Caesar was a master as a leader in, in all kinds of ways. Um, but Caesar was also a, an intellectual. And he was one of the leading intellectuals in his times. That's something that is often overlooked um the great orator uh, and statesman cicero um had the highest opinion of caesar as an intellectual he caesar had written speeches court speeches in his early years uh and they were still known and circulated and um cicero thought on the basis of these speeches that caesar um didn't uh, met the highest expectations and compared with the very best um, speakers that uh, Rome ever had. Um, Caesar had a very rare sense of style and the purity of the Roman language, a rare ability to express precisely what he wanted to, uh, to say so that uh, the, or- the reader could understand clearly what he was writing about. Um, <clears throat> he wrote a work on the purity of the Roman language which he supposedly, um, I guess this is historical, uh, dictated to his secretaries while he was riding across the Alps to meet his army again in Gaul. Um, He was famous for dictating letters and all kinds of things while he was on horseback. Um, So he was a a leading intellectual as well. And so his historical works, the, the Gallic War and the Civil War, are works that are not just generals' reports. They are highly elaborated, stylistically supremely polished um, uh, pieces of, of literature, and they they use all kinds of devices. This is something that I'm working on right now as an offshoot of my of my um, work on Caesar. Um, he he incorporates devices that are typical. Of um, writing his history. Um, he knew the Roman historians that had written before him. He knew, especially, there were Greek historians, the great Greek historians, Thucydides, Herodotus, Polybius, um, and especially Thucydides. And there are various features in Caesar's work that show us that he knew Thucydides and emulated him as a historian. And <clears throat> All these devices help to produce um, reports, narratives that are dramatic, passionate, gripping, that really pull the, the reader in and um, therefore are able to convince him of the position that
0: these takes. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, this is one of the things,
1: um, (coughs) I just mentioned. I call it Caesar the historian, um, in which I want to bring out more than has been seen so far. How many, in how many ways Caesar actually uses uh, characteristics of the high art of writing history in the ancient world to, to, um, enhance the work he's doing with his commentary. I have another article which I'm working on. I just gave a lecture yesterday on that, which is confronting the dark side of Caesar's wars, especially in Gaul. Um, and it's a side that has, that is customarily underestimated, ignored, because the brutality of war is just taken for granted. But if we, if we take, put together, the whole picture of the um, brutality of the wars that Caesar fought in Gaul. It is a depressing picture. I mean, just to give you an example, um, uh, probably one million Gauls were killed, another million were enslaved. The the fatalities among the civilian population most likely were much higher than that. Um, We estimate that between one-fourth, and one-sixth of the population of Gaul perished in these
0: 10 years of war.
1: Um, And there are clear cases in which Caesar um, met the criteria for what we now call genocide. Um, Some of the tribes were systematically eradicated in this this war. And um, this is a reality which underlies that story, uh, that beautifully written story, that dramatic story and impressive story that we have to see because Caesar, as I said before, is a school author. Uh, he plays a very important role in the high school curriculum, and uh, he's read at the universities and so on. We just have to look at this picture. And so uh, in this article, I'm collecting all the evidence for the brutality of Caesar's wars. Um, and then try to see whether it fits the criterion of the modern uh, definitions of genocide, which it does in se- several cases, and and then ask whether it makes sense to accuse Caesar of a crime of which he didn't know and which um, it took um, centuries of a brutal warfare after him to actually recognize and define and persecute Um but uh, I try to then also find ways of dealing with this by looking at Caesar uh, at the way that um, these actions are happening constantly in war, and wars in the ancient world, especially against foreign peoples, know very few, if any, uh, moral restraints, and looking at Caesar as a typical Roman, and there uh, it fits in perfectly well because what he did was not unusual at all in his time, and of course, if you look at the history of author in the ancient world, beginning with the Mesopotamians and ending with the Romans, um, it, this is the same story everywhere. But then I also um, try to draw the attention of the reader to the fact that Caesar is also a very unusual um, Roman, because he very much emphasized Clemency, leniency, trying to avoid this kind of behavior if he could, and um, even characterizing um, clemency as his character trait, as his habit, as his sort of default action. Um, and that, there are very impressive documents for this in the Gallic War and in the Civil War. And that sort of puts a positive image next to the very negative image that we gain if we look at all these atrocities in the Gallic war So these are two of the things I'm doing, and for the rest, I'm picking up uh, pieces that fell off my chariot as I was racing to the finish line of the Caesar book, and um, <laughs> in a heroic metaphor. Yes, so that's what I'm doing right now.
0: Well, they, they sound like uh, excellent works. I look forward to reading them. Kurt Roflop, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Yes, thank you so much.